Thank you, worship team. You may be seated. I really like that rendition of Oh Holy Night. It's um, got a kind of a bebop feel to it, doesn't it? Bump, bump. Dip, 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 dip. It kind of has that for those of you who are into 50s stuff. It's beautiful. It's just beautiful. I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here, and it really is good to see all of you here as we're celebrating the birth of our king. And that's something we don't want to do once a year. And that's something we want to do every day of the year. But this makes this is a, an important celebration. Um, and uh, we just enthrone him as Lord of all. Most people, when they hear the story that the children just heard with that Irish angel, um, I, think, I think the guy's confusing angels with leprechauns. I don't know. But, oh, they're always trying to steal me lucky charms. Uh, but uh, when they hear a story like that, or, or just the Christmas story in general, they tend to think of it as a religious story. It's a religious story. It's in the Bible, and the Bible's a religious book, so it's got to be a religious story, right? And I, I would agree that, that the story has, to a large degree, become, for a lot of people, a religious story. Uh, it's associated with being cute and quaint and nice and tidy and serene. It's a religious story. But I don't think, originally, it was intended as that. We, for the last three weeks, we've been looking at uh, we're in the series, Christmas at the Margins. And uh, uh, we, we've been seeing that there's a lot of surprising things that are going on in this story. Here's the thing. Religion is usually pretty predictable. Uh, part of the role that religion plays in, in humanity's life is, is to make us feel secure in a world that is often very unsecure. But it's really hard to feel secure if you have an unpredictable God. And so... Throughout history, God and the gods tend to act just the way that the religion uh, stipulates gods should act. There's no surprises. Religions tend to be very, very predictable. But what we've been seeing the last three weeks is that uh, this is not a predictable story, not if you're looking at it from a first century perspective. There's a lot of surprises. In fact, there's surprises at every turn. Uh, so we, we saw last week that... Um, all first century Jews assumed that when the king of kings comes into this world, this king Messiah, uh, he'd be surrounded with royalty and dignitaries, right? Because that's how, that's how kings are supposed to be welcomed into this world. But what we saw last week was that God bypasses all those dignitaries and he, he invites these lowly shepherds to come and participate in this story. And these shepherds were among the lowest class of people in first century Judaism. They were kind of looked down upon and judged. Not what you'd expect. And then everyone in the first century assumed that when this Jewish Messiah king comes into the world, uh, he'll be surrounded with Jewish holy people, with the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and, and things like that. Well, God bypasses those folks, instead invites these wise men that we just sang about, these wise men from the east. And what we saw two weeks ago was that those wise men from the, from the east were actually astrologers, magi. We get the word magic and magician from it. Um, and what's interesting about that is that the Bible forbids astrology. And yet God calls these people who make a living doing something the Bible forbids and invites them to be part of this Christmas story. That is not at all what you would expect. That's not the way religious stories go down. And on top of that, um, the official religion of the Persian Empire was Zoroastrianism. Uh, and and they, they believed in two different gods, a good God and an evil God. Now, the most fundamental tenet of ancient Judaism is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. There's only one God. And everyone would expect that the king, the Messiah king, when he comes into this world, would be surrounded with people who have right beliefs about that. They believe in the creator God. But instead, God bypasses those folks and invites 
these astrologers who believe in two gods. Not at all what you'd expect. There's surprises at every turn in this Christmas story. It's not reading like a nice, quaint, cute, sweet religious story. And there's other surprises as well. Uh, kings, when they come into the world, you expect them to be born in palaces. Uh, but this king is born in a barn, a crowded barn. Not only, is he not, not only is he not surrounded by dignitaries, but he's surrounded by animals, cows and donkeys and sheep and things like that. Uh, not quite what you'd expect. And uh, kings, when they come into the world, they're supposed to be surrounded by wealth and opulence. But instead, this king, he's born to these Jewish peasants. Nobody's really. Um, they, they, they just don't register in terms of wealth or in terms of significance in the culture. And kings are supposed to sleep on nice cushy beds, right? Uh, but this, this king sleeps in a feeding trough. And the reason he's in a feeding trough, that's what the manger is, a feeding trough. And they have to put him there, Matthew says, because there's nowhere else to put him. Because if you put this little baby on the ground, some cow's going to step on him. And so he has to sleep in this. This is not your typical story. And kings are supposed to be safe and surrounded by mighty armies. But this king and his two parents, they have to flee, uh, running from Herod, and they become immigrants in the land of Egypt. None of this is at all what you'd expect. It's really shocking stuff if we're looking at it from a first century Jewish perspective. It doesn't read the way religious stories are supposed to read. And then to turn to the story we saw tonight, or we heard tonight. Um, Elizabeth gets pregnant with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is the forerunner for Jesus. Uh, the thing is, is, she's way too old to be having kids. Way too old, sorry. Uh, but there it is. That's kind of surprising. And then Mary, Mary gets pregnant with Jesus, but she's a virgin. And she's not even married to Joseph. Uh, they're engaged, they're betrothed to one another, and that was a legal binding agreement in first century Judaism, but they hadn't yet consummated the marriage. So this is not only unexpected, folks, this is scandalous. This is, this is about as big a deal as you can get in first century Judaism, to have a child out of wedlock. You never live that down. You never live that down. You will have a stigma for being a harlot the rest of your life. And Jesus is going to have, have, have the stigma of, of, of being bored out of wedlock, wedlock the rest of his life. Their reputations are tainted from the start. Now, we know, of course, that it was the Holy Spirit that put that baby into the womb of Mary. But no one else knew that at the time. And no one would believe Mary if she told him that. Even Joseph, her betrothed husband, didn't believe her. And that's why he was going to end the engagement. Uh, and it wasn't until that he had this dream, God gave him a dream that said Mary's telling the truth, that he finally believed her. If I was married, I'd be a little ticked off for that. I mean, you, you don't believe me, but you believe some dream you get. Uh, then Mary's got off to a rocky start, I think. But, um, yeah, so, so, so she's going to have this stigma on her uh, throughout her life. And you can see this stigma in, in, in certain areas of the gospel. Like, for example, in John 8, Jesus is talking about the Heavenly Father. And at one point, the Pharisees say, well, where is your father? And what they're sarcastically doing there is saying this, how can you go talking about your heavenly father when you don't even know who your earthly father is? They'd heard the story of, of, of Mary being born out of wedlock. And we know from certain Jewish writings called the Talmud that um, uh, there's a widespread rumor in the ancient world that Mary had been impregnated by a Roman soldier. With some accounts saying she seduced the Roman soldiers, others saying the Roman soldier raped her, but it doesn't make any difference. Uh, all that is intended to discredit Jesus, because it's a way of saying, um, how can this person claim to be the Messiah when he's not even fully Jewish and he's born out of wedlock? Their reputation is tainted from the start. This isn't what anyone would expect. This isn't what 
you think God would do? I mean, if, if the all-holy God is going to come into the world as a human being, which is already unexpected and pretty radical, but if, if, if the all-holy God's going to come into this world and be born as a little baby, wouldn't you expect that he would do it under holy circumstances and acquire for himself a holy and respectable reputation? But instead, God intentionally, intentionally comes into this world in, a, in circumstances that look scandalously sinful. And his reputation is tainted from the start. What kind of God does that? This is not your typical religious picture of God. It, it, this is not a cute, quaint story, folks. If, if anything, it's the opposite of a cute, quaint religious story. It's an irreligious story. Maybe even an anti-religious story. It's breaking all the rules about what re- predictable religions are supposed to be believing and doing. And then it just goes downhill from there. Uh, you know, G- Jesus, throughout his life, uh, it just gets more and more irreligious. Everyone is assuming that this King Messiah will be hanging out with the holy people and the powerful people and the dignitaries, and he'll be supporting the religious establishment, and the religious establishment will be supporting him. Instead, Jesus is constantly bucking heads with the religious establishment. They're bucking heads with him. He's not getting along with them at all. Instead of hanging out with the holy people, he's hanging out with the quote-unquote lowlifes. He's, he's going to parties, Luke tells us, with, with tax collectors and prostitutes. And, and the, therefore, the religious establishment is judging him uh, he, look, he's, he's a sinner who parties with other sinners. Birds of a feather flock together. And that's what you'd think, in their minds, that's what you'd think for a guy who was born out of wedlock to a Roman soldier. But it's not at all what you'd expect if this person really was the Messiah. It's just scandalous. It's just scandalous. And then, most importantly, on the cross, when Jesus comes to the end of his life, uh, he takes on an appearance of a guilty, God-forsaken criminal. As he stands in our place... As a judged sinner, he appears as a judged sinner. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that, that, that Jesus became our sin and became our curse. He became, it, it means he fully identified with, with us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our curse. Fully identified with us. So, so the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. He is born in circumstances that look scandalously sinful. He lives in circumstances that appear scandalously sinful. And he dies in circumstances that appear scandalously sinful. From beginning to end, the one who is God with us appears to be a sinner. Why is that? It's because he's in love with sinners and is identifying with sinners. But this, folks, is not what anyone would expect. This is not a cute, quaint, nice, tidy religious story. This is bursting all the categories. It's blowing up all the religious assumptions. This is something radically, radically new. In fact, this is one of the ways that you can know that this story is true. Um, If the disciples were going to make up a story to try to sell Jesus as the Messiah to their Jewish audience, this is not the story they would tell. If they they were going to make up a story to try to sell Jesus to their religious audience, they would tell a religious story, a a story that met met the people's expectations, that fit their categories, that would convince them. Instead, they tell this cockamamie story that breaks all the rules and be very offensive to all the Jews. You don't make up a story like that if you're trying to sell something. Now, the truth is they would have no motive for making this story up. Uh, They only got themselves killed for it. Not like they got rich off of this thing. So they have no motive to make it up. And the truth is that they couldn't have made it up if they wanted to. Because this isn't a story about something that happened long, long ago and far, far away. This is a story about a contemporary that the audience knows. His brother is among the band of disciples. Uh, you can't just make stuff up when, when the brother of the guy you're talking about is among the, the, the believers. So they had no motive, and it was not possible 
to tell us a, a, a tale. But if they had for some insane reason wanted to, this would not have been the story they would tell. This is an irreligious, offensive story that, doesn't, that no one expected. And see, this tells us something very important and very unexpected and very irreligious about the one true God. Uh, because of the influence of religion, including the influence of the Christian religion, uh, most people have a kind of, when they think of God's holiness, they have sort of a prudish understanding of it, uh, a prissy understanding, a God who just doesn't want to get his hands dirty. Uh, it's like when I first became a Christian several centuries ago, um, there was a, the preacher said that, that because God is all holy, he cannot, he's unable to embrace sinners. That's why he has to take his judgment out on somebody else. He cannot. And we were taught that, in fact, God is so holy that he cannot even look upon you where there's sin in your life. He's disgusted with sin in your life. But see, the Christmas story here reveals that God's holiness is anything but prudish. Uh, this is a God who, 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 who not only can look at sinners and embrace sinners, this is a God who pursues sinners. He's God with us in the midst of our sin. That's why he looks sinful from beginning to end of his life. This is a God who dives head first and identifies fully with us in the middle of our messes. See, religion will tell you that, that, that you have to clean up your mess first if you're going to come to God. But, but the God is revealed in the Christmas story and the story of Jesus' life and the story of Jesus' death. This is the God who says, no, no, I, I come to you first. And, and, and the relationship comes first. And that's how you're going to begin to get your act to clean up. But don't think you have to clean it up first. This is the God who embraces us exactly as we are. And he does that because he's just this crazy, unexpected God who has this profound love for sinners. And by the way, we all are in that category. And so he identifies with us in order to embrace us and in order to transform us. Emmanuel is born and lives and dies in irreligious ways because he's not after a religion. He's after relationships. In fact, this God, this crazy God, this unexpected God, this wild God, he blows up religion in order to make space for the relationship. Amen? This God, his holiness... I mean, you may have been told by religion that, that you know, God's too holy to... He only hangs out with holy people, not the likes of you. Uh, that, that he's so holy that he, when, when you sin, when you mess up, he separates himself from you. But, folks, the truth is, the Christmas story reveals that to be a religious lie. Because the truth is that he pursues you, he chases you, he dives into you in the middle of your mess and loves you out of it in the middle of your mess. He is God with us, Emmanuel, God with us, and he can't be with us if he's not going to be with sin. Because, <laughs> sorry, folks, uh, you know, if this was a God who, who didn't like to get his hands dirty, he's got to stay away from us because we're dirty. And if he's going to be embracing us and loving us, he's going to get his hands dirty. But apparently, what this Christmas story tells us is that this God isn't afraid of dirt. No, no this God dives headfirst into it. That's what the cross is all about. And the Christmas story that tells about God becoming one with our humanity and culminating in the story of the cross where God becomes one with our sin and our curse. It reveals an altogether different kind of God, a God who defies religious expectations, a, a, a God who just can't fit into the, the, the normal categories of religion, a God who loves us, he's with us, identifies with us in the midst of our mess. So religion may have told you, including the Christian religion, it may have told you that uh, you know, you've messed up your life too much, and you've messed up other people's lives perhaps too much. Uh, and so now God's angers towards you, or God's disappointed with you, or God's ashamed of you. And maybe you were told that your infidelity and your lying and your cheating put you outside of God's love. Or maybe you're told that your lust issues or your divorce or your sexual orientation put you outside of God's love. 
or maybe you're told that your drug addiction or your alcohol abuse or those abortions you had put you outside of God's love. Or maybe you were told that your unbelief or that, that pregnancy out of wedlock or just the nasty harm that you've done to other people, it puts you out of God's love. But folks, what is revealed in the Christmas story and in the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus is that there's nothing that puts you outside of God's love. He's God with us all the time. Amen. And see, it reveals this God who is just, it reveals a God whose love is infinitely greater than your infidelity. It's infinitely greater than your lying and, and, and your cheating. It's infinitely greater than your lust or your issues with your divorce or sexual orientation. It's, it's infinitely greater than, than your alcohol or drug abuse or abortions or the unbelief that you have or doubts that you have or having, being pregnant outside of wedlock or even the nasty stuff you've done to people. It's, it's, it's infinitely, it renders all those things insignificant because it's the love that God is and it's perfect and it's unwavering. Right now, Jesus is God with us, and that means he's God with you. And what that means, folks, is that, that you are right now, as you are, loved with this love that is unconditional and unquenchable and uncontainable and unconquerable and, and inexhaustible and, and indefinable and incomprehensible and unassailable. That's the love that we're talking about. That's the love that's manifested on the Christmas story, and there's nothing religious about it. It's way more beautiful than that. Amen? Amen. Amen. So here's the thing. Right now, you are loved with a perfect, everlasting, unconditional love. That's why this, this Christmas story is not a cute, quaint, tidy, religious story that meets our expectations. It's a scandalous story of an irreligious... It's, a, it's an irreligious story about a scandalous God who scandalously loves irreligious people. And we are all in that category. And, and so he's with you right now as you are. And your mess is no problem for him. Uh, his love is greater than that mess. The thing is this, however. Um, all the love in the universe, and that's what you have with God loving you, all the love in the universe won't do you a bit of good if your heart is closed to him. As we all know, a relationship takes two. It takes, it takes two. Two folks have to say yes. God says yes in his birth, his life, and his death on the cross. The question now is, will you say yes? Will you say yes? Um, will you open up your heart to the God who loves, has loved you from the, from the very start with his perfect, unconditional love? Will you surrender the reign of your life over to him? That's what it is to cultivate a relationship with him. And we're not talking about some silly, you know, get out of, get some post-mortem fire insurance because you say a certain prayer. God's not interested in those kinds. That's religion. Uh, what God wants is a real relationship with you. And see, this relationship, because you're related to the eternal God, this relationship lasts forever. That's what salvation is. It's simply this relationship. And so I want to give anyone here this afternoon who isn't yet surrendered to him a chance to do that. And it's just a matter of saying, I trust that you are as beautiful as you're revealed to be uh, in the New Testament. And I trust, I, I, I turn over my life to you and I open my heart to you and begin to transform me from the inside out. You don't have to know all the details about what it is to walk with God. In fact, maybe you don't know anything about that, and that's okay. That's what the community's for. We help one another figure out what it is to walk with God. So if you're willing to cultivate this, just to commit to moving in this direction, I'd like you to pray this prayer. And um, I'd like to ask all those of us who are surrendered to, to, to Christ to pray this prayer in support of them, and also because this is just a good prayer to pray every day of our life. And so if, if, if this is your heart's desire, pray this prayer after me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for bringing Jesus into this world to save us from our sin. 
to free us from our bondage and to reconcile us back to God. Thank you for loving me. And I gave you a million reasons not to. I'm so grateful that your love is bigger than any mess I've made in my life, than any bondage I'm in right now. And so, Lord Jesus, I open my heart to you. And I ask you to come into my heart and begin to build that relationship with you. And begin to transform me from the inside out. I surrender everything to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Yes. And look, if now that wasn't a magical thing that just happened, that was just a commitment you made. And, uh, and so now the walk begins. And so if you prayed that prayer tonight for the first time, or maybe you're recommitting your life, we have a sheet back at the information desk that says, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And I would strongly encourage you to pick up this sheet. And we just give some clear-cut steps. What does it look like to begin to be a disciple of Jesus and to begin to cultivate this, this eternal relationship with the living God? Amen. And if you just prayed that prayer, you may not know it now, but that's the most important thing you've ever done. And this is the best Christmas present you've ever had because uh, this one goes on forever. Amen. This, this truly is the gift that keeps on giving.